Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me. Today, a program with a difference. We've brought Studio 19 on the road, and today we are recording and filming in IPA ACT's offices in Barton, a stone's throw from Parliament House here in Canberra. We've also changed it up a little, and I'm joined today by my first co-host, Holly Noble, the chair of IPA's Future Leaders Forum. You will know that in each week, we take questions from the future leaders. Well, today, we will be asking them live. Holly's day job is the Director of Transformation and Education in the Federal Department of Finance. Holly, welcome to you. Thank you. Our guest today is Francis Adamson, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Francis is an accomplished public servant, a South Australian and former rower at the Adelaide University Boat Club. She joined the Australian Public Service in 1985. She served Australia twice in the United Kingdom, the second time as Deputy High Commissioner, and also in Asia on post in both Taipei and Hong Kong. Between 2011 and 2015, she served as Australia's ambassador to the People's Republic of China, the first woman appointed to that role, and she was also the first woman to be appointed to her current position as Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and that was back in 2016. Frances has also been a foreign policy advisor to the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. She joins me in Studio 19. Frances Adamson, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thanks very much, David. Great to be here and nice to be with you too, Holly. Frances, I'll begin with a a bit of a story against myself because it has to be said that I've admired your sort of competence and composure from afar for for many years. And it was in fact in this very room. IPA was hosting a function in your time as Mm -hmm. president. And I remember watching uh, you at that particular event and I was admiring the way that you deftly moved from one conversation to the next and I was pointing this out to my friend Andrew Metcalf when all of a sudden you turned and headed my way and I remember being (laughs) completely panicked and you very politely and calmly asked me a question looking straight straight at me and I had nothing. I bumbled my way through an answer. (laughs) And you were very polite, but I was crushed. I don't often lose my composure. And I still think, I still cringe thinking about it. And it has to be said that Metcalf wasn't much help because as you did move on to the next person, he looked at me and he shook his head and it was as if to say, you know, not your finest, not your finest moment, David. Anyway, Francis, welcome to uh, to work with purpose. And do you have that effect on other people well, or is David, it just me? David, can I just say, I, I don't, I don't I, that is not what I took away from our interaction. I took away a very pleasant meeting on a very pleasant occasion. So I I think you probably need to. Um, can you? Can I ask you to rethink that in your own mind? It was a pleasure meeting you then. It's a pleasure being with you today. But you do have that authority, and I suppose where did, where does that come from? You sort of grew up in and around policy, in and around politics, did you? Mm. And you joined the APS sort of straight out of university. So was it a career that you you wanted to have? And you were practicing for from an early age. Well, I don't know about an early age. I mean, I. I um, uh, these, these things start in our own minds at a particular point and sometimes ideas form over a longer period. But like 
a number of diplomats. I was a, on a student exchange program at a certain stage in my life, very early university, and that opened my eyes a bit to the world and along came an opportunity to come to Canberra. But to your point, because I think this is worth me picking you up on, if I might be so bold, you say uh, I appear confident or you know, I know what I'm doing or whatever. But, of course, you, if that's the case now, that's great. But uh, in my own mind, and some things you remember unfailingly, even as long ago as 30-plus years, and I remember on my very first posting in Hong Kong, I'd been doing language training. I hadn't formally started my first posting as a vice consul. I'd been in the public service for about a year and a half. And the consul general asked me if I would represent her at the um, reception hosted by the Japanese Consul General for their National Day. Uh, and I, there I was, a language training a language trainee out in the New Territories of Hong Kong, had to find some suitable clothes, travel by underground into central Hong Kong, up from the underground into a five-star hotel, present myself to the Consul General, say I'm here representing Australia, congratulations, etc. Now, look, my knees were just about quaking. I knew not one person in that room. And you realise, you know, it comes back to rooms again, you just have to bowl up to people. And sometimes you're in, you realise, after a while your antennae develop, you realise that you're at risk of interrupting something that's really important, so you sort of move on. Uh, but after a while, you just have to introduce yourself to people, say who you are, and that's how you start to meet people and how you develop networks of contacts. And I'm going to come back to Ipera a few times in our conversation because as a former president, I'm a great fan. And one of the things Ipera does really well in normal times and even now over podcasts is it brings people together. Mm. And the act of coming together enables us all to practice, if you like, in a pretty friendly environment, meeting people understanding what their perspectives are, asking good questions. And that whole process, if you like, has been accelerated across the APS as we've worked together so closely with a purpose uh, through this COVID period. Mm. You, you come to the, the COVID period and in terms of your reflections on it, what... And I know a lot of that um, focus has been, uh, you know, domestically around the health crisis mm. and other things. But one of the one of the big challenges was certainly getting Australians home. Mm. Can you tell us that story about DFAT and the way sure. it responded, and, and and when you got the the advice, and and when you acted? Oh, yes, I can. And I suppose mm. the question is, how long have you got? Because the story is still unfolding, if you like. Okay. I mean, we've had something like 300,000 Australians have come home one way or another since the 13th of March. Um, early on, I think the, the difficulties people caught on, on cruise ships in a wide variety of locations. I remember early on looking at a map of the world on which was a, a little star for every cruise ship on which Australians were stranded and somehow affected and needing our help. We've brought 6,500 Australians home from 51 cruise ships in the period since the 13th of March. And, and then none of this has been trivially easy. And I absolutely take my hat off to colleagues here in Canberra who've been working night and day, to colleagues around the world, because we've got still got 70% of APS staff, if you like, in place overseas serving Australia from a wide variety of departments, but quite a number of my colleagues too. And some of them have been working in very uh, heavily affected by COVID parts of the world. In some cases, they've been trying to help Australians from 
positions of self-isolation and quarantine. Mm. Um, whether it's, you know, our heads of mission in Nepal. I saw a fantastic photo the other day of Pete Budd um, giving a media interview at a social distance from the back of a car through a car window with local media sort of gathered around because he, he'd sent vehicles somehow he'd collected Australians from across Nepal and brought them to a point where they could get on a flight and get home. And uh, there have been the most extraordinary uh, things done and work done. And, of course, part of what's been needed is good information for Australians because in normal times we provide a level of what we call consular assistance, which is you know, fit for purpose and reasonably modest. These have been totally unprecedented times which have called for an approach that has gone well beyond mm. what's written in our consular charter. So one of the things in this social media-driven age that we've needed to do is we actually had to encourage, some needed no encouragement, but had to encourage our ambassadors, our high commissioners, our consuls general to communicate with Australians using social media, let them know, you know what commercial flights are available, what non-scheduled commercial flights might be able to be arranged, what What's the level of interest? Where are people? I mean, a lot of how coverage. Much certainty, though, how, how much certainty, though, did you have of where all of those people were? So the, the cruise lines sound like, OK, we might be able to know that quickly, but there are lots of people sure. in lots of places where you just would not yeah. have a clue and, that and they're you, there. And you don't necessarily, I think it's probably fair to say you don't know anything quickly. You know there's a cruise ship, but there are hundreds of the things, thousands at mm. any one time around the world. Where are the Australians? Where are Australians... In, on COVID-affected ships, what testing arrangements are in place, where can they land? I mean, we, we've had some instances of Australians being caught on ships that haven't been able to berth. The foreign ministers personally had to get engaged calling counterparts, asking for assistance. In other cases, though, we've always worked on the basis for a decade or more, that at any one time there are about a million Australians overseas, right? Australians okay. love to travel. Some people like travelling so much that they stay where they stay overseas, put down roots, uh, and are very happy doing that until a time like this. And for many Australians in those situations, they've had to make pretty difficult calculations. Do they stay or do they go? And, of course, our travel advice from the very beginning, we put our, at our first... COVID bulletin in late January to warn Australians of this new thing and what it might mean. And we've kept them very much engaged since then. Now we think there are still probably well over 10,000 Australians in parts of the world where they're contemplating coming home, wanting to come home, assessing their situation. We're in touch with them, including through our heads of mission making these um, social media videos got half a million views in the first week and up to a million and a half in the second week, just showing how much appetite there, there was to hear whether it's our ambassador in Paris talking about the situation there, including actually recently on Anzac Day, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether it was our ambassador in, in Peru. A lot of Australians in Peru, including parts of the Amazon that not so easy to get to. Mm. So intrepid Australians, pretty capable Australians, obviously, but some of them are really a long way from home and needing our help. Of course, there have been limits in a number of cases to what we've actually been able to do, but we've always wanted to be a calm, friendly voice at the end of a phone. And we've taken 38,000 calls through our emergency call unit again since the 13th of March. I'll throw to Holly in, in just a second, but 
can you describe at the moment, is there such a thing as a typical day for you? And, and can you give people some insight into how you're managing your workload with your team? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of things have changed. Uh, let me just talk about change because I think you know, most public servants, uh, we like routine, scheduled meetings, uh, you know, day might have a particular shape, a particular day of the week. And for many of us, for myself included, that's been pretty much upended and, mm. and uh, we've had to rethink and reshape how we work together, including because there's been a, a very high tempo of, if you like, prime ministerial-led, ministerial-led meetings and, in, and engagements. Of course, the, um, the chief medical officer, the deputy um, medical officer, deputy chief medical officer, the minister for health, they've had a, a lot of profile, a lot of prominence. They've been central to every meeting. But in many of the meetings that the Prime Minister's chaired, the Foreign Minister's been present, the Trade, Tourism and Investment Minister's been present, I've been there as well. So in the early stages, I think it's fair to say, uh, if I look back on it, I was trying to do my normal job and this new thing called COVID response. And I, you know, it took me a week or two to actually realise, I remember saying in my office, I can't do this. It's just not possible. I'm good, but I'm not that good. <laughs> no, well, apart from anything else, that, that, you know, things that I'd planned to do with my diary, like yeah. my performance discussions with my 20 direct reports, many of whom are ambassadors overseas, I had to keep cancelling them because yeah. other meetings were being called to attend to COVID. So there's been a lot of change, a lot of different ways of doing things, including, and this will be a constant theme in your discussions, uh, flexible and remote working by staff, yep. Yep. including me when I can. If Obviously, if I'm dealing with classified material, I have to be in the office. A lot of WebExes, a lot of uh, telephone hookups. Um, and what I've seen is, I mean, we've all adjusted. Everyone's adjusted. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's some humour around these things. There's a lot of connection that can come through a screen. Um, and I, I think... Yeah, lots of changes of work patterns, changes to the rhythm, I and mean, the pace is just frenetic. Yes. You used the word reflect before, and I thought, hmm, I had a couple of minutes to reflect on my way from <laughs> the RG Casey building over here, but there's not much other time for that during the day. And I think that's a, that's a thing that I, a bit more on weekends, a little bit more on weekends, yeah. you get a, an opportunity to think more deeply. And I think it's important that we all find time to do that, even while we feel yeah. we're working at a fairly cracking pace. Indeed. All right. Yeah, well, as I say, we've been, we've been taking questions from the future leaders. Mm. And I know you were, you've been a massive supporter of IPA Young Leaders over the years, and it may have even been an initiative um, of your time here in leadership. But we've got the chair. Uh, Holly, Excellent. Holly, <laughs> the microphone is yours. Thank you. Um, Francis, you touched on that there's a lot of change and mm. we're interacting through screens and working a lot more digitally. Have you found that your leadership style and, and the way that you set culture mm. has had to adapt a little bit given that mm. most of our interactions are now digital? Yeah, I'll, t I'll Two things, but first of all, let me take no credit for the for the um, future <laughs> leaders. I mean, they're, they're wonderful. Just bank it. They're wonderful. No, 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 they're wonderful. But all I've done is give encouragement. It, uh, it was, you know, it was an idea of one of my many distinguished predecessors. I think there's been quite a bit of discussion, Holly, during this period about you know what what is the right, if you like, uh, leadership style for a crisis. And there's a lot of theory that in a leadership, you, in a in a crisis, you need more directive leadership. And my own leadership style is, I've got to say, normally 
very, uh, I like to think very, we all like to think very, but let's just drop the very and say it's inclusive. Uh, and I'm, I'm DFAT's diversity and inclusion champion. I, I, um, I'm a very strong believer in, in all of this, whether it's women in leadership or supporting flexible and remote working or staff with disability. You know, you, you, you'll find me uh, putting my hand up on the Secretary's Equality and Diversity Council often. So that's my normal style. There was a point again, not in the very first days or the first couple of weeks, when it suddenly became apparent, though, that we were having to make some really very substantial changes and decisions under a lot of pressure, not just pressure relating to the safety of Australians overseas generally, but pressure relating to the safety of our staff and their dependents overseas and a whole range of other things as well. But you feel it most acutely because as a secretary, my number one priority is the safety and welfare of our staff. So I actually found myself, including with a bit of encouragement, I'd have to say, from our, my uh, chief operating officer, Penny Williams, I needed to be more directive, she said. And, and I understood that. I was able to do it uh, with colleagues. I still wanted to be directive in an inclusive way, if you like. And, you know, there, comes, there is a bit of tension in those things. But uh, we, I think we adapted as a leadership group. And I think we, we've passed through the, the peak of, if you like, directive. And we're back to pretty focused, inclusive leadership, but to a real, again, I mean, the, the purpose, I mean, the title of this series is just absolutely spot on, to a purpose in terms of still elements of our crisis response, many of them relating to the safety of Australians overseas, but not solely. It's about, it's about supply chains. Yeah. It's about assistance to Australian businesses, whether it's through Export Finance Australia, Tourism Australia, Australia, they're part of the DFAT portfolio. Yeah. We work very closely with them and they're providing frontline help to Australian businesses. Um, so whether it's during that phase or whether it's now, and we're putting a lot of effort now into what does recovery look like? As the Prime Minister says, it's about the other side. What does it look like as we continue to help Australians in terms of uh, jobs, in terms of economic growth? What does that look like when the tourism industry, international tourism, is completely ground to a halt, when supply chains are broken, when um, it's very difficult to get you know, rock lobsters or, or uh, you know, fresh produce of any kind into the bellies of aircraft because they're not flying? And that's where the uh, International Air Freight Assistance Mechanism has been so useful. There's a sectoral support fund relief and sectoral support fund, a billion dollars worth that colleagues are helping work on as well. So people often think of us in terms of consular, a lot of work supporting business, a lot of work also actually on input into domestic policy making. Because DFAT through our embassies, we're the eyes and ears out there in terms of what's working. Social distancing measures, new, how do you, how do you release uh, restrictions once they've been put in place? What's the experience in relation to schools? What's the experience in relation to testing, apps, all of these things? There's a vast trove of information coming in from our overseas posts, which is going to the Department of Health and across government. Yeah. And they're looking at and saying, is this something that we can work with? Do we want to know more about that? Might that be relevant to Australia? So look, that's, that's the start of an answer. Mm -hmm. It's not the full answer necessarily, but across the service, I think it's fair to say a lot of thought is now going into policy development and thinking around um, uh, delivery for the other side. 
So you've you've spoken about kind of waves of change and mm. being able to move through that and, and what recovery looks like. Yeah. It was very impressive how quickly the APS was able to enact their business continuity mm. planning. We we just moved mm-hmm. so quickly and yep. we were very adaptable and I was very proud to be a public mm. servant as part of that. What are the types of things that you would want to keep from your business continuity planning exercise? Were there mm-hmm. anything that worked very well that might see us through the future mm-hmm. waves of change? How might we adapt? Look, that's a really good question, Holly. And of course, you don't uh, start to do business continuity planning on the day you need it. I mean, every department, I think, has been sort of doing it for years. And we've we like to think that we've learnt along the way, but I think one of the reasons it was so successful, I think I've already made mention of my coup, my chief operating officer, but I want to make mention of all coups and of the coup committee and of our chief risk officers and all the people who contributed to this, but not just people who've been in senior positions. When you're going through a period of change, you really want input from people who think differently, input from from uh, young leaders, emerging leaders, future leaders, leaders of any kind, people who can think differently. And I think what that's done is effectively, if you like, almost, I won't say it's totally collapsed the public service in terms of hierarchy, but it's much more around what you can do, what ideas you can bring to the table, how can we make this work? And I think there are lots of things. I mean, we're engaged in a discussion in DFAT at the moment, two main elements. One is, how do we learn lessons as we go? And we're very fortunate because uh, just over five years ago, the government decided that uh, AusAid should be integrated into DFAT. And we, AusAid, brought with them uh, an Office of Development Effectiveness. And their role is to monitor and evaluate our aid programs as we go, if you like, and once they're completed at various stages. So we've got the Office of Development Effectiveness, if you like. I've got them sitting on my shoulder in a very friendly way, helping us evaluate as we go along. What's the feedback from our staff? What's the feedback from Australians we're serving? How can we adjust this? Have we got our governance mechanisms in place? Because for public servants, it's not just the the agility to do things differently. We've got to be accountable as we go. So I think, so part of the discussion is what are we learning as we go? We really want to learn. But then what does the future look like? And the way I think of it, Uh, This might be a bit extreme. I'm not normally extreme, but I think there's an opportunity now for us almost to start with a blank slate. You know, there's the period that went before COVID. That's how we did things. We've now got an opportunity to rethink, reimagine, not just in a theoretical way, but drawing on the very practical experience of the last weeks and months and, and some more to come. So I think that's very much up for discussion, but I wouldn't want to underplay either I mean, I think the elements of hardship that our staff across the service are going through in terms of, you know, sense of isolation, disruption to normal routines, mm-hmm. having to work and homeschool children at the same time uh, without... I mean, we're enjoying, the three of us, having a face-to-face discussion. I mean, how good is that? Uh, you know, we, we want that. We need it. There's, a, there's a, almost a, a sort of physical response to it. So I think... Uh, while there is a lot that is positive and a lot that we, in a way, want to be able to sort of grab hold of and do something with, I think there needs to be a good discussion about all of that. And I think we will probably need to, maybe more than we realise, I think the adjustments of a return to work and a return to more normal life, whatever that might look like in a future sense, I think we've just got to be quite thoughtful about that and supportive of staff. Mm. Um 
you've mentioned, for want of a better word, information overload. There's so much information mm. coming in um, that there is going to be future change happening. It's not. It's yeah. not going to stop. Um, we've got. Uh, social isolation, how do we cope mm. with all of these things that we haven't necessarily had to before. Mm. Are there any main adjustments that you think particularly a future leader would need to make in terms of either resilience or being adaptable? Mm. I think resilience is a really important point. I mean, your point about mm. information, let me just touch on that as well too, because mm. I think at one stage early on, I was receiving about 20 different reports yeah. in relation <laughs> to COVID, you know, whether it's what's happening in our South Pacific neighbours, uh, numbers of Australians overseas who might want to return, uh, issues around our own staff, welfare checks, um, uh, supply chains, all sorts of things. It, 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 it become, You realise at a certain point it becomes too much, so you have to work out, everyone needs to work out where do you get your information from. Now, future leaders are really good at that because you've got your own feeds, you've, you've designed your, the way you absorb information differently, but I think this tells us, including... You know, from the smallest human interaction between us to the biggest geopolitical change out there, you know, things are changing in the world around Australia and our pre-COVID assumptions we're going to have to re-examine. So you've got to be thinking about the tiny, almost an atom-like, through to the biggest thing that you can, you can imagine. So part of it is that, but in terms of resilience, how do you, how do you build resilience other than through experience? I'm not sure. No, no one particularly goes out there wanting to get you know, scars on your back or to be toughened up or whatever. I think I've been assisted in uh, helping lead our response on COVID by the fact that I was, you mentioned that I'd had a posting in Taipei. Mm. I was there during SARS and I was there, SARS hit Taiwan very, very hard and Taiwan learned enormous lessons from it that it's never forgotten and I did too. So... I know what it feels like. And there was a genuine sense of fear of the unknown early on. What, what does this mean? How is this virus spread? We still don't really understand it. But I think, you know, you build resilience through your own experience. And I think managers need to help staff build resilience too. It's got to be part of a conversation. You want people to grow, to, to use this opportunity, this opportunity for tremendous growth at the moment. But you don't want to uh, weigh people down too heavily because then a what is otherwise a positive experience becomes a negative. So I think you have to know yourself and I would say, this might surprise people a bit, I think it helps to be able to somehow look at yourself in a detached way, to mm. just be a bit objective about, you know, what are your signs of stress? Are you, are you snapping at people? Have you got sort of aches and pains that you don't normally have? All of those sorts of things. So you can become more resilient if you're looking after yourself. Making time for reflection. Yeah. So in terms of the recovery, and it's it's interesting, in, in the earlier podcasts, um, Catherine Jones, Elizabeth Kelly, speaking about the role of business. Mm. And as we move into recovery, into what will be a new economy, mm -hmm. the role of business to create employment, to generate tax revenues, et cetera. Yeah. What's your reflections on that and the role that DFAT will play in the new economy. Yep, sure. Well, let, let me just say there's one thing that we particularly focus on. We're doing a number of things, but one thing that others may not have mentioned. During this period, and, you know, Australia's not dissimilar from other countries, uh, governments have, have needed to change a number of the ways that they do things in relation to 
trade policy, if you like, and a whole range of measures have been introduced to support business. And that's all good in a crisis. But if those measures were not targeted, if you like, not temporary, not transparent and not consistent with the World Trade Organization rules, we would find ourselves in a much more, if you like, protected world and that means a protectionist world and that would not be good for Australia as we seek to rebuild our economy. We can get a certain amount of growth domestically, a population of 25 million, it's not small, but to really get things going, we need to have those connections to the rest of the world for trade, for investment, for tourism, for international students. And part of the work that we're doing in terms of our policy thinking and advice to government is around the temporary nature of these measures and how they might be undone when the time is right. And the Prime Minister's been active in the G20, for example, the the virtual leaders meeting that took place and with other counterparts in saying, yes, we need to do this, but we also need to be looking ahead to growth and that protection is going to need to come off if we're going to be able to grow along with others. And let's remember the Indo-Pacific region before this happened was generating something like 70% of global growth. Mm. So we've got a real interest in our neighbours once they've recovered, and there's still a long way to go there, particularly for some of them, being really able to fire up their own economies and generate growth, which will help us as well. But, do, but you also do you also see that there will be that necessity for Australia to really come out of the blocks as quickly as it possibly can to capitalise on that growth in the Indo-Pacific region and to be present, available, creating value, delivering goods, delivering yeah. services? I mean, yes, of course, services is such a big part of our economy, around about 70% of our GDP. But this, you know, the Prime Minister from the outset talked about these twin crises, a health crisis and an economic crisis. And the health elements, everything the government's done really has been based, based on advice from health professionals. And their advice will continue to um, uh, be very influential, I think. So, you know, the, just call, uh, tail end of the Prime Minister's uh, press conference today. He's already you know, talking about we're going to need to keep some of these settings mm. in place for a while yet. So yes, but on the basis of good health good advice, advice as well. So just a final question, um, and perhaps this is to ask you to reflect on this, this recent period, but what's made you proudest to be a public servant during the, uh, the response? Oh, look, just, uh, I mean, really, obviously, just the amazing work my colleagues have done. I see my colleagues more than I see anybody else, but I know if you had any secretary or head, head of agency in this chair, they'd probably say the same thing. Mm. Just, you know, we all know that we do valuable things in serving the Australian people. We know that in normal times. In normal times, though, you don't necessarily get that continued recognition. Normal life is normal life. But when I see the amazing way that they've stepped up, you know, getting those flights out of Wuhan first up, a whole range of ways. But I, I, I have said so very openly and repeatedly. I am incredibly proud of my colleagues. And I find myself using you know, adjectives that I don't normally, I mean, epic and intense <laughs> and the sort of things that my, you know, 18 to 28-year-old children use because it is, it's, it's, it's just, it is beyond normal and, and people have just risen magnificently to the occasion off the back of bushfires and yeah. 
all of the other things that we, air quality and other things in Canberra early in the year. So I say it about the DFAT portfolio, but I say it more broadly about the public service because it's not that we're you know, beating our own drum or anything particularly. I just think, you know, we've, we've done what we're here to do, yep. what we joined for. Yep, exactly. Well, Francis, thank you um, to you and to you, Holly. Thank you. Thank you uh, for coming along today uh, to ask those questions. And thanks to you, the audience, again, for the, the overwhelming support we've had to this podcast. I think a podcast about the Australian public service where we do talk about the public service and the work of the public service is attracting a real audience. So that's fantastic. So you, the audience, if you would like to review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, that will help us to be discovered. So that would be much appreciated. And indeed, we are going to randomly select one of those reviews, good or bad, I don't care, but we are going to give you a t-shirt. Now, the first recipients of the Work With Purpose t-shirts, which I'm now going to show to the camera, there, Francis, one for oh. you. And Fantastic. Holly, one for <laughs> you. you. Very much. Uh, wear those great. with pride. Your yeah, work with I will. Uh, the podcast that has it all. So um, please leave us a review and we will hand out, we'll randomly select a review and we will send those through. So again, my thanks to Holly Noble and to Francis Adamson and thank them both for their service and thanks to you, the audience. We will be back at the same time next week with another distinguished Australian public servant. But for the moment, it's... Bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.